Welcome to the Liberty Block. This is Elliot Alu Axelman. I'd like to answer a common question in a podcast and a video today. We wrote an article explaining the answers and some of the solutions to this question. And we'll put a video and audio podcast into that article as well. And we'll link the article in the show notes. So I've been asked a lot, and I was actually asked this by somebody who was supportive of secession, but really was genuinely curious about how healthcare, the system, would work in the Republic of New Hampshire once we inevitably leave the Union or if the Union collapses and we become independent. So I explained to her some of these uh, answers to that question, or just imagining what it might look like. I'm not a prophet. I can't predict the future, but I, I explained to her some things that might be different. It'll, it'll mostly be the same, but there will be some key differences. If New Hampshire leaves the Union, what our healthcare system would look like. So we have an article here on Liberty Block. It's titled Healthcare in the Republic of New Hampshire. Um, let's go over it here in the video. Almost everything would remain the same. Um, there would, you know, EMTs would still be staffing ambulances, driving patients, um, treating the injured and the ill, and hospitals would still exist. Um, we would still have urgent care centers and surgical centers. All, none of that would change at all. It would all be the same. There would be a few differences, though. Without DC politicians, regulators, and laws, individuals would be free from horrific federal laws, such as the Obamacare law that literally punished people who chose not to buy health insurance. Without DC politicians and regulators and their laws, health insurance companies would be free to offer any plan they want. Currently, the five big health insurance companies, the only ones that the federal government allows to exist because it's a, a semi-monopoly, it's like an oligopoly. Without the federal government, we could have more insurance companies, but also insurance companies could offer specific plans. So for instance, if somebody is 25 and a healthy male, they will have want a plan that will cover certain things, like maybe um, catastrophic injuries and maybe catastrophic illness or cancer diagnosis or something like that. They don't need a plan that is expensive because it covers things such as um, pregnancy because they're a 25-year-old male, and 25-year-old males can't get pregnant, regardless of what, of what um, some progressives may say. So because it has to cover so many things, well, the health insurance plans are just made more expensive. It would be like paying for car insurance that covers every single thing, every single gas and oil change and everything, and you're using it a thousand times a month, that is going to be an expensive plan compared to a bare bones, catastrophic only plan. So right now, health insurance companies have to offer certain things because of federal regulations. And again, if you look at the, the federal regulations, federal laws that are probably thousands and thousands of pages, maybe millions of pages of just federal laws of regulations for health insurances. Once we leave the union, health insurances will get better less costly, more competition, more companies, more plans, and it can be more individualized, tailored to the person. Next in the article, we address just the number of federal laws for healthcare institutions. So currently, if you want to open up a hospital or continue operating your hospital or any institution, not just hospitals, a surgical center, urgent care center, radiology center, a lab, a medical lab that does any kind of uh, specimen, um, laboratory analysis or anything, any kind of health institution, you very likely have to get federal licenses and federal permits and pay federal taxes and obey tons of federal regulations. These things cost people a lot of money. For instance, if I wanted to open up the Axelman Hospital, Axelcare system, or a whole healthcare system, before I opened that hospital, I would probably hire uh, a few dozen lawyers and a few dozen compliance, ex compliance officers and other experts 
who would make sure that we comply with the infinite, and it really is actually infinite because they've never been able to count all the federal laws, the infinite codes of the FDA and CDC and NIH and, and all of HHS, all the, the agencies within health and human services of the federal government, not to mention DEA for all the drugs um, we would be giving to patients. So in order to comply with those, I, I don't know, I admit, I don't know all the FDA and uh, DEA and CDC laws offhand. I would have to hire hundreds or thousands of experts, meaning just to comply, to make sure I'm in compliance and not going to be breaking the law and having men with guns sent to my hospital to, to punish me or put me in a cage or kill me. I would have to hire probably thousands of lawyers and other compliance officers. Now that I've already paid billions of dollars for these people, I'm going to have to be charging my patients massive sums of money. Does it make sense? This is why healthcare is so expensive. I think this is the biggest reason. It's because hospitals, you could argue they're evil, they're not evil, it doesn't matter. They have to pay billions to make sure they're in compliance with ridiculous federal laws, needless regulation and red tape, and they have to pass that cost on to the consumer, otherwise they'd go bankrupt. Either they go bankrupt and fold, or they maintain their their business by having their uh, revenue not be that much more than their uh they're not their expenses not more than the revenue excuse me so if if your expenses are more than your revenue you don't have a business you know you go into debt and eventually go bankrupt your revenue has to exceed your expenses in order to make a profit in order or at least to break even so next we have the just the medications so another big difference in the healthcare system in an independent nation once we no longer are in the union and no longer have to obey federal laws would be medications so currently bringing a new medication or drug to market because you have to get it through FDA testing, FDA has to approve it. It takes an average of 12 to 15 years and $2.6 billion. And I think that's pretty outdated. So it's probably longer and definitely more money, uh, I would assume nowadays. So over $2.6 billion. Again, who has $2.6 billion on them? A few companies, Pfizer, Moderna, maybe Mylan, maybe um, AstraZeneca, maybe Johnson Johnson, maybe a few other big pharmaceuticals. Um, the biggest ones, and, and they're all in bed with the federal government. They really are crony capitalist, semi-governmental agencies, these these big pharma companies making billions, um, especially as you saw now with coronavirus. So they can afford it maybe, and, and they have you know these PIs and everything that can make sure that the, they can get these trials to look good so they get FDA approved very often. Without the federal government, we would not have to worry about spending 12 to 15 years and 2.6 billion or 25, 10 billion dollars just getting it through the approval process from the FDA. We can have our own state uh, agency that can make sure medications are safe or no agency and doctors would only prescribe them and patients would only take them if they were shown with real evidence data that we could see from all the clinical trials to be safe and if people chose to trust them they could if they chose not to trust them they could choose not to take it very simple it's called a free market and it's called personal choice and it would save us billions and billions of dollars the, the fda budget is also four billion dollars itself so people Taxpayers are paying $4 billion a year for the FDA. But also private companies have to pay billions just to develop drugs, just to be able to go through all the trials. Clinical trials take a lot of money. Most people are not willing to uh, take medications unless you give them money, I think. Um, but also just, just setting up the clinical trials, you know, the hospitals and the rooms and the doctors and the medications takes a lot of money. Um, all right, what do we have next? Yeah, just the CMS. So the, the federal government's Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services CMS controls, let me see if I have the number of payers here. I think it was uh, 70 or 80 or 90%, but let's just go on the low side, 70% of uh, individuals in the United States are primarily Medicaid or Medicare payers, meaning that the insurance that reimburses the healthcare professional who bills them is 
the federal government via Medicaid and or Medicare. This gives them a tremendous leverage tool to control people and healthcare institutions and healthcare industry at large because the CMS can say, if this, then that. If the hospital, so let's say I uh, get shot, I go to a hospital and my bill is $15,000, they patched me up really well, sent me on my way or transferred me to another tertiary care center and the bill is $20,000 and uh, I have Medicaid, let's say, because I'm poor and I have federal Medicaid, it's federal state program. They might say, we are not going to reimburse the hospital the full amount, we'll reimburse 10%. Or we'll reimburse 5% because the hospital's own employees are not fully vaccinated. Only 80% are fully vaccinated. And they can have this metric, and they're going to do it. I think they already do certain things. Also, CMS has already come out and said, I think under the dictator Biden administration, CMS has said that they're going to be giving bonuses, meaning reimbursing more for healthcare institutions or health professionals who have plans and, and real solid um, actionable plans for, um, what do they call it? Deprioritizing white patients and prioritizing um, uh, black or people of color. So if you, if you hurt or kill your white patients and, and prioritize black patients for white patients, CMS, the federal government is going to use the CMS leverage to encourage that racism. So corona fascism, not reimbursing. Um, and these are just a few examples the racism, a few examples of what CMS could do. Horrific leverage tool. It's a horrible choke point they have on all people in the United States. And I've been warning about this for years since way before corona fascism. I said, CMS, they can, they can control us because they can threaten to not reimburse for something. And then they get to control people because then they'll do what they want to do. Also, CMS is one of the reasons why the health insurance industry, the, the corruption there has gotten so bad and so expensive. Because right now, pretty much what happened was, and I actually have the rates here, at least in some contexts, let me find it here, the numbers. Um, CMS, Medicaid and Medicare, um, depending on a lot of factors, they reimburse the provider who bills them to so the hospital or the provider 21 to 24%. So um, Medicaid is a little lower, I think, um, maybe closer to 21, but Medicare, maybe only like 24%. So. Um, here, and we have sources for all this. So 21 to 24% of the bill. So if, if a hospital bills a patient um, $10,000, Medicaid or Medicare might only reimburse closer to 2000 or $2,400. So eventually, and they know that they bill, and, and it's pretty much based on a percentage. So if there's a bill for $10,000, Medicaid, CMS will say, we're going to give them only 20%, 24% reimbursement. So what is the hospital going to do? Naturally, they're going to jack up the price and say, okay, we're billing you $87,000, knowing that they're only going to be getting 24% of what they ask. So this is, on a basic level, this is, I think, the biggest reason why prices of, of healthcare have increased so dramatically over the past few years. Now, we've all heard, you go, you get a bag of saline, it costs 17 cents to make, and, and then you get a bill for $90. And I've, I've seen this firsthand. I've gone to hospitals for a few minor procedures, and I've gotten many bills, even with insurance. Um, insurance covered most of it, and the bill was total of, you know, five, 10, 20, $80,000, ridiculous amounts. And I still paid uh, a few hundred dollars, which, and then I got another bill from the, uh, the hospital and the doctor and then the nurse and then the other part of the hospital, but the lab and then the other lab and everyone gets to send you a bill every few months. It's ridiculous. But people blame capitalism. It's not, it's the federal government's fault. Almost all of these things is the federal government's fault. So those are just a few examples of what the issue is uh, with CMS. And, and again, once we leave the union, CMS would no longer exist. So we write a fair amount about Medicaid and Medicare in the article. Um, let's see what else we have in the article. Healthcare facilities generally do not have to pay taxes, just 
generally do have to pay taxes, just like any other business. Some hospitals are exempt from some federal taxes if they meet certain criteria. Um, they, they can be tax exempt. Um, and we're quoting here from tax prof. A tax exempt hospital did not have to provide any free care to the poor so long as it maintained an emergency room open to all regardless of ability to pay, accepted Medicaid and Medicare, and had independent governing body comprised of community leaders. That's interesting. So um, so people might ask, why would you accept Medicaid and Medicare? Well, you kind of have to if you want tax exempt status, which some nonprofit hospitals do. So, and they don't have to necessarily be nonprofit. So there's a lot of coercion, obviously, to stay within the Medicaid and Medicare system. If you say you don't take them, then you don't get certain benefits, obviously. So... Yeah, we say in the article, thus the federal government incentivizes hospitals to accept Medicaid and Medicare by lowering their taxes. Once the hospitals are hooked on CMS money, because they're getting, again, like 70, 80% of patients are CMS payers, they have a very powerful tool to control them forever. Um, now, the federal tax rate for businesses in the United States is 21% of the net earnings. If a hospital in the United States earns $1 million a year, they must send $210,000 to D.C. politicians right off the bat. Um, they also have payroll taxes, and every employee of hospitals does have income taxes. If you are a regular nurse, and again, you know, there are millions of nurses, doctors, techs, janitors, everyone, you know, from CEOs down to janitors, medics, EMTs, everyone in a hospital pays federal income tax. One of the biggest differences in all of healthcare, to be honest, will be the federal income tax. And yeah, that's number eight in the article, so we, we mentioned that. So from every nurse, the paramedic, and doctor, and janitor, and radiologist, everyone in between, they, every person in healthcare will save, you know, between 15 and 35% of their money, depending on how much they make and their current federal income tax effective rate. So that'll be probably the biggest change, to be honest. One of the biggest differences in healthcare once we leave the union will be the people themselves, like the doctors and, and EMTs and nurses, will be saving tremendous amounts of money, 15, 20, 30% of their money every year. That would be a big difference. Now, here's the, the hard part. Number nine, what about people who are currently on welfare because they are in poverty or disabled? In the Free Republic of New Hampshire, I believe that people would work for a living if they want to eat and have a home. How about that? Pretty crazy. But, oh, Louis, you're insensitive. You know, you're evil and you're insensitive. Yes, I've been attacked as evil, greedy, insensitive capitalist bastard. On one hand, that's true. I am greedy. I'm a, a capitalist. Um, I'm not evil, but I, I am uh, greedy and capitalist. And I do believe people should work for what they want as far as food and housing. Um now, that being said, I, I did volunteer back in the beginning of my medical career. I volunteered for like 30, 40 hours a week for like three years straight. So technically, did I volunteer more time for my community for really no benefit of my own besides like a bit of EMS experience? Um, did I volunteer more time than like the average um, 1,000 people combined? Yeah, probably. But um, that's not necessary because other medics who don't volunteer a lot of their time for years um, still, I wouldn't say they're evil, and they still can make the points that I'm, I'm about to make um, in good conscience without being hypocrites. So I, I think any person with an IQ above around 40 or 50, and if they have at least one limb or a set of vocal cords, they can easily find work, especially in New Hampshire where everyone's looking for work. And yes, I'm being serious. I used to say that the only people who can't work are quadruple amputees, but I realized that a lot of work is actually done um, on the phone. So anyone who answers phones for a living, as long as they have vocal cords, even if they are quadruple amputees, they can still earn a living. They could probably earn 15, 20, 30, $40 an hour if they can answer phones and be decent at customer service. Because again, phone representatives, as everyone here knows, is a very big portion of the world's workforce, right? People who answer phones. So if you have vocal cords or at least one limb, if you have one limb, you can work on a computer, which again is, I think, the majority of jobs um, in, the, in the Western world at this point. So if you have e either one limb or um, 
uh, vocal cords, and your IQ is about 40 or 50, so if you're not super severely mentally retarded, because I think uh, mental retardation starts at IQ of 70, and then 60, 50, 40 gets towards moderate or severe, I think like 40 or 30 IQ is like severe mental retardation, and they really cannot work. So you do, you cannot be severely mentally retarded. So if your IQ is about 40 or 50, and you have either a limb or vocal cords, you can find a job. If you say you're disabled and can't work, it's, it's just BS. It just is. Sorry. Um, in my experience, nearly zero people receiving welfare are truly so severely disabled that they cannot earn a living. Again, I've transported many, many welfare patients in, in my career. I've seen, I don't know, 10, 20, 25,000 patients over the last 10, 11 years. And um, those who have dis disability, Medicaid, SSI, disability, Medicare, um, I treat them as well as I treat every patient. I treat everyone as well as I absolutely can, and I don't discriminate. Now, politically, that being said, should these people be receiving welfare based on the fact that they're so disabled they cannot work? No, because, you know, I've been injured. I would I would never think of going on welfare um, because you could still technically work. If, I, if I'm a medic and I hurt my arms, yes, I can't work as a medic. I can still find other work. I should not be taking welfare, again, um, especially considering it's funded by taxation, which is theft. So... Um, I say here in the article, in my experience, almost everyone who's who's receiving welfare really is not so disabled they can't work. I would consider people to be disabled only if they have severe cerebral palsy, meaning uh, bed-bound, mentally retarded, and or on a ventilator, they can't breathe, they can't move any muscle in the body, um, or if they're a quadruple amputee with no vocal cords as well, which again, would be probably one in a billion people. Um, at, at the high end, we could safely imagine maybe there are 500 such people in New Hampshire, and that's on the high end. There's probably zero, maybe one or two, but let's say 500 even. They're completely disabled, cannot physically work. Um, and again, that, that being said, some are extremely old. So may, maybe 500 makes sense. Um, and it's possible that's more. Um, because people who are 99 years old um, probably can't really work for a living. Now, again, ideally, and I say this in the article, ideally, they these people who are 99 years old, who, again, as a reasonable person, I would not expect them to work for a living. When I'm 99, I most likely will be six feet under the ground or you know many miles down in hell. Um, and I won't be working, but ideally they will have friends and family and neighbors and local religious societies and other associations and neighbor associations and many other institutions that will care for them. What are the chances that people are totally disabled and cannot work and have zero family or friends or relatives or neighbors or anyone or any institution that cares for them because they've, they've destroyed their relationships with every institution? Meaning they probably are a, a terrible person because if you've pissed off every single religious institution, every church in the world, um, yeah, and nobody wants to help you anymore, those people um, re really have probably done it to themselves. So because the United States would be as charitable, as charitable and as generous as New Hampshire is ruthless, the disabled people would also only have to go back to Massachusetts or any state in the union to get the care they deserve. So if people would argue that people in New Hampshire are greedy capitalist evil pigs like me, which they, they you know, they are free to make that argument, then these people can go, even if they're disabled, they, all they have to do is arrange for one family member, hey, distant cousin, I know you hate me, do me one favor, give me a ride over the border back to the union, Massachusetts, Vermont, or Maine, and then we can get great care because the argument here is that New Hampshire is evil, but the rest of the union is not. They're the opposite, they're compassionate. So. You know, even if you say that New Hampshire won't take good care of their elderly or their sick or disabled, um, which I, I think they would. I think we are charitable. I'm sure we give you know billions a year in, in charity and volunteering. I know people, my my friends donate to the, the privately funded um, shelters in their neighborhoods. So, but even the best case scenario, if we take all their arguments at face value, still all the people would have to do is get themselves over the border back to the union. Um, 
and then they would be taken care of because they would have you know they'll probably have universal health care and they do have Medicare already in the union and they will have universal health care very soon. So um yeah we go on on the article let's see what we have here um oh, here's a small one number 10 in 2021 federal regulations were altered and the process of organ donation essentially regulated or uh, controlled by by UNOS and some other agencies the their rules changed and now the federal government essentially said if i remember correctly what used to be um a smaller radius was now increased i forget what the radius used to be it's been increased to 250 nautical mile radius for organ donation meaning anyone who uh passes away and or has an organ that is viable and could be donated that's that's um unharmed organ so if somebody passes away in an accident and their heart and their lungs and liver are intact those organs instead of staying within the state like they used to are now going to be sent anywhere within 250 mile radius, which includes all of New York City, which is, again, another 8 million people. And I think parts of Jersey, obviously, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, New York, um, uh, Massachusetts, uh, uh, Vermont, up, upstate New York. So now if somebody loses a an organ in New Hampshire, even if they wanted it to go to their own neighbors, the federal government kind of takes it and says, we're going to give it to most likely New York City, even if it means taking the organ on ice for four hours which, which does decrease the chance that it is able to have a successful transplant so um there's legislation that a state representative pretty close jose cambrils proposed that would simply allow for people to indicate on their id like they're an organ donor also similarly indicate that they would like to prioritize their neighbors in new hampshire should they have an organ that is transplantable um now this bill has had increasing amounts of pushback At first we thought it would sail right through but there's a lot of pushback from maybe people in D.C. or in New York City, who knows. And um, I think it was held over from last year, it was retained, and this year they're going to try to kill it. So it might not even pass. And it's a common sense bill. It just lets people choose to not let D.C. steal their organs and give them to New York City. It lets them. It would allow people to have their organs post-mortem stay within the state. So, and then we finished the article by saying, what would the healthcare industry look like in New Hampshire five years after becoming independent from D.C.? And, and while we can't predict the future, we can assume that with no federal taxes or regulations, thousands of doctors, uh, physicians, surgeons, nurses, PAs, MPs, midwives, EMTs, paramedics, and, and any other healthcare practitioner, radiologists, lab technicians would pour into the state because they would be saving at least 20, 30% off the bat with no federal income tax, no federal regulations, and no other federal hoops to jump through. And also opening up their own practice would be easier. If they wanted to open up a hospital or a surgical practice or an urgent care, it would be a lot easier as well because they wouldn't have to go through federal regulations or pay the federal payroll taxes and other taxes and deal with all of the other OSHA and ADA and everything else and deal with coronafascism because we know it's not going away in 15 days. Coronafascism is probably here to stay, you know, possibly even forever. So, and we would have things develop like we see in a free market within healthcare, like the, the Surgical Center of Oklahoma, the SCO. And we see with laser eye surgery that's relatively unregulated, which has, has boomed to be able to provide excellent service at a very low cost. You can fix your eyes for a few thousand bucks, excellent service because we have competition in a pretty free market. So we've already seen some small examples of this. We've seen DPC, SEO, laser eye surgery. Um, without the FDA and CDC indoctrinating our youth and adults into living on corn syrup and Fauci TV all day, they might exercise outside in sunlight for a change as well. And we can improve, improve their health for a multitude of reasons. Um, and we can just have overall better healthcare without federal regulations and federal hard and soft coercion and other influence so 
I finished off the article by saying I don't claim to know exactly what an independent New Hampshire would look like, or I can't promise it would be paradise, but living under the boot of D.C. tyrants like Biden, Clinton, McConnell, Fauci, and the rest of them does seem pretty close to hell. So it would be better. We can't promise it'll be paradise, but right now we're kind of in hell as far as how terrible our healthcare system is. And, you know, both sides admit this. The right says it's, it's too far socialist, and the left says it's too capitalist. So almost everyone w would say in the United States that the, the healthcare system is pretty bad. Um, I think it's, I would agree with the, you know, conservatives and libertarians there. I would say it's way too close to a British NHS or Chinese Communist Party universal healthcare system. It's, it's very much government controlled. They claim it's capitalist, but it's not. So current, what, let's not compare it to paradise, what I'm saying. Let's compare it to the status quo. Status quo is we have pretty much terrible, socialized, cronyist healthcare that's extremely expensive because politicians meddle with it. Would an independent New Hampshire without federal government, without all the federal agencies, be better or worse? I would submit to you that it would be a lot better. And that's why I think healthcare in an independent New Hampshire would be much better than it is currently. No, hospitals would not collapse. If one or two CEOs want to go back to the union because they're afraid, let them go. Good riddance. Overall, the hospitals would remain in place. If some people want to leave, good. Someone else will buy the hospital. I will get together with some others and buy a hospital to buy the actual building and maintain the equipment here. Because I don't think they're going to break down their hospitals with a wrecking ball and drag their MRI machines back over the border to mass back to be in the union. If a few hospital executives want to leave, so be it. That's fine. They can go to hell. New Hampshire's healthcare system, I guarantee, and this I couldn't be guarantee, would be much better than it is now. If we leave the union in five years, five years after independence, would be much better. And, and that I would bet on. So once we leave the union, we'll have much better health care. I hope that helps answer some of the questions. We're going to keep updating this article. It's also, you could also find this article in the booklet called Articles of Secession, and we'll link it as well. It's on Amazon, and I'm hoping to give it out to the legislators so they can vote on CACR 32, so they can realize that they should vote yes to at least give us a chance. All this legislation does is it puts the question on the ballot for the people to vote on so we have a chance to vote yes on independence. So that's it for the podcast and the video, and check out the article on libertyblock.com. Thank you very much. This is Aldo Axelman. Until next time, have a great night.